The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. As always, it's an honor and a privilege to spend this time with you. Thank you for uh, tuning in, checking in. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you. And uh, glad to share this time to sit under God's word together. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke this morning, chapter 2, a familiar passage. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. So we're continuing our series for Christmas. We're calling The Lion and the Lamb. And uh, it's inspired by this theme in the book of Revelation where we see uh, the greater beauty of Jesus Christ in knowing that he is both lion-like, majestic, powerful, wonderful, and lamb-like, humble, kind, meek. And the fact that he is all of these things simultaneously makes him all the more wonderful to us. So again, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. We're going to look at the story of the announcement of Jesus' birth. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. Let's hear God's word together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child." And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, 
You are constantly communicating, Lord. The greatest communication is the communication of your son. And we want to hear of him again. We want to see him again with the eyes of faith in your word. Lord, we thank you for this promise of ultimate peace. We thank you for the reality that in and through Christ, uh, we can be of those with whom you are well pleased. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at your word, even this morning, you would give us peace. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. Peace in our hearts, peace in our minds, a growing peace in our relationships, peace in how we live, Lord, knowing that one day you, the Lord Jesus, you will return and we will have ultimate peace forever and ever. Uh, we thank you for these great promises. We pray that they would have their work in us even this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite quotes goes something like this. Peace for our time. Those words were spoken by the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain after his meetings with the French Premier Mussolini of Italy and the German Fuhrer Adolf Hitler. These meetings, Chamberlain reported, have resulted in peace for our time. Then he added to the British people, I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. And as Britain slept, the German army marched into Czechoslovakia. Peace for our time. The reason I appreciate this quote is because it's so ironic. There would be anything but peace in that time. The war to end all wars, World War I, was just about, what, 20 years later to be followed by World War II. So this phrase, peace for our time, it reminds me of how confident humanity can be at proclaiming peace and how bad humanity can be at actually accomplishing peace. So we're continuing our Christmas series this morning, inspired by a theme we see in the book of Revelation. We see how Jesus is both lion and the lamb and how that makes him all the more worthy of our trust, our love, and our worship. As the old theologian Jonathan Edwards said regarding this theme, Edwards said, there's an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. So we imagine the majesty of a lion and the humble gentleness of a lamb, and then to see those attributes simultaneously in one person. Well, he is exactly the wonderful, the beautiful king our hearts and our world needs. So for Christmas, we've been looking at stories of Jesus from the Gospels that display this admirable conjunction, lionness, lambness, and we've been working backwards to the moment of his birth. And so this morning, we are going to consider the announcement of his birth. Now, of course, Luke 2, 1 to 20, this is a passage you've all heard many times before, and maybe that's part of the problem for us with this passage, is that it just feels so familiar Peace on earth. I mean, we've seen that a million times on designer Christmas cards. Angels singing, right? And of course, we know they're cute with their little wings and their, their harps and their pensive faces. Now you got shepherds in a manger 
we remember a Christmas movie where maybe they're all lined up, you know, in the perfect angle, and you got the light from heaven shining down on the child who, of course, no crying he makes. You know, it's like an Olin Mills photo shoot. All of these kind of cultural ideas gives you this kind of sense that Christmas was cute or fuzzy or easy. But our text today reminds us that Christmas wasn't cute at all. There's poverty, there's suffering, there's the poor struggling under the rule of tyrannical governments. It was all very real, all very difficult. So we want to try this morning to see what happened again in a fresh way. To hear again and respond to God's declaration in the midst of all the mess of the birth of his son and how Jesus alone gives ultimate peace. So four things I want to see with you this morning. Counterfeit peace, the promise of ultimate peace, and the result of peace, all because of the Prince of Peace. Counterfeit peace, ultimate peace, the result of peace, all because of the Prince of Peace. So let's look first at this picture of counterfeit peace. You see in Luke 2 verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Luke, we know this gospel writer is an excellent historian. Uh, And in this verse, he refers to Caesar Augustus and one of his decrees. Just to remember a little bit about this Caesar His name was Gaius Octavius, and he was the grandnephew to Julius Caesar, who loved him, adopted him, and declared him his heir. Later, Julius Caesar was murdered, and after some power struggles, Octavius became the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. He was granted the title Caesar Augustus. Of course, August means worthy of honor. And this Caesar ruled over 40 years until AD 14. Historians tell us Caesar Augustus was a brilliant leader. He doubled the size of his empire, winning battle after battle, campaign after campaign. And he brought what historians call the Pax Romana, the Roman, what? Peace. So in this time, Rome dominated the known world. And there was, to some extent and in some way, peace. Borders were open. Roads were built. In fact, Caesar Augustus was so successful and so powerful that it was claimed by many that he was the savior the world needed. I want to read to you uh, something found out on a scription dated 9 BC that some folks had written about Caesar Augustus. So listen to this. They say, The providence which divinely ordered our lives created with zeal and munificence the most perfect good for us by producing Augustus and filling him with virtue for the benefit of mankind, sending us a savior who put an end to war and established all things. The birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good news through his coming. This is kind of amazing, isn't it? Did you hear some familiar themes between what the angels are going to sing about and what Caesar Augustus supposedly offered? 
uh, in this inscription about the Caesar, he brings good news, great joy for everyone. After all, he's the savior of the world who brings peace. In fact, he's a god. Caesar Augustus was actually called Divi Filius, which means son of the divine. So here's the question. Caesar Augustus, did he bring true peace? Did he bring ultimate peace? The nation of Israel certainly did not think so. No, you had peace under Roman rule as long as you did what they demanded. And if you did not, their peace could be quite brutal. In fact, they're going to tax you like you never dreamed. And that's what takes us to the situation of the beginning of Luke chapter 2, the situation of Mary and Joseph. We meet this young couple, most likely in their teens. They're married, and Mary is quite pregnant, about to give birth. We see in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, that due to government, government decrees, Mary and Joseph are forced to travel over 70 miles to Bethlehem. Now, ladies, if you were about to have a baby, how do you feel about a 70-mile hike? You know, she's either walking or maybe bumping along on a donkey late in her third trimester, and also that Caesar can get this census done and to get this census done, also that he can get his taxes. And I imagine Mary moving along thinking, thank you, O Savior Augustus, for your glorious peace. And so Joseph and Mary have to go to Bethlehem. They're of the lineage of David. They have to go to the town of David. And there, as they arrive in this small town, we see the account of Mary's firstborn son being born in obscurity and poverty. That's what you're supposed to see here. Obscurity and poverty. They arrive along with the whole crowd that has to come to this town for the sake of the census. And every place is filled to the brim due to this government Regulation, And so all that's left is probably this utility room. Many houses had this kind of side room somehow for their family livestock. And so that's all the room that's left. And they say, you guys can use the room. And so she probably had her baby in the corner of this crowded house, wrapping him in swaddling cloths, just dish towel cloths to keep him warm, laying him in a feeding trough for animals. It's obscure, it's, it's unknown, it's just in a corner. It's poverty, it's normal. It's normal for the masses of the world just trying to make their way. It's not the way anyone would draw it up. It's hard, it's tedious, it's a mess, it's difficult. It, I'm sure it felt like it had a massive lack of peace. And I think Luke is showing us, in a way, in this counterfeit claim, you know, Caesar Augustus, the son of the gods, the one who brings peace. I think Luke is showing us, in a way, that even at their best, Caesar's presidents, governors, can never ultimately deliver on real peace. In fact, in countless ways, there is no sustainable peace 
to be found in this world. That's true when it comes to nations, when it comes to social groups, when it comes to politics, when it comes to our relationships, even our families so often, even our minds and our hearts. We know this lack of peace very well, don't we? In the times we're in. I didn't go over them in detail, but I encountered some studies this week. A recent Gallup poll said America's assessment of their own mental well-being is lower than any time than over the past 10 years. Studies from Boston University and John Hopkins have found that symptoms of depression, psychological distress are triple those found even as recently as 2018. We know we long for peace and it's hard to find. So again, that, that phrase, peace for our time, this world cannot deliver on ultimate peace. If we long for peace, we are going to need to look elsewhere. But the story also tells us that in the midst of the mess, the counterfeit peace, ultimate peace is coming. Ultimate peace is coming. And we see in these verses in the beginning of Luke 2, that God is mysteriously, majestically keeping his promises of peace even in the midst of the mess. You know, due to these political injunctions, Mary is forced to this short window in the city of Bethlehem. And we know that Mary had no control when it came to two things. First, the political situation. She had no control. She had to go to Bethlehem, and she had to go now. Secondly, the physical situation. She's going to have to have this baby, and she is going to have to have it now. And we understand, at least from a distance or maybe by experience, the feeling of being out of control when that baby comes. And just this picture of Mary feeling maybe like she had no control in the midst of the Mets. But we see that God did. God had total control. And even in the midst of the mess, he was keeping his promises to bring peace. Let me show you what God had promised. Maybe 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This is found in the prophet Micah chapter 5. Look at these amazing words. Micah 5 verse 2. The prophet writes, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one, is who, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, verse four. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Wow. Here the prophet is foretelling of God's king, one that will come for God himself. And he'll be born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, Bethlehem was where David was from, and David was Israel's best king. And God had promised David that one of his descendants would be king of kings and reign forever. 
And so here in Micah, we see that this coming king would be born in Bethlehem. And we see that he would be the shepherd king who's both strong but also kind. And his people under his reign will dwell secure. For he's great. He is ultimate peace for them. He is their peace. So God's going to bring his king who is ultimate peace for his people. But this king has to be of the lineage of David and has to be born in the town of David. And so we see this amazing thing that through the machinations of this pagan king who really is almost a counterfeit Christ in his claims, this pagan king who knows nothing of God and cares nothing for God, he wants the census, he wants his taxes. In the midst of Caesar Augustus' rule, it is God who is sovereign. God who is sovereign over the kings of the earth for his purposes. And it is God who gets Mary and Joseph of the lineage of David to the town of David for this window of time so that God's promises can come to pass and that Jesus can be born in Bethlehem. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to see that even in the mess, mysteriously, God keeps his promises to bring ultimate peace. And now we are going to hear the announcement of this peace in the birth of his son. Verse 8 takes us to a picture of a different place. We leave the crowded house where the baby is born and we get two shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. You know, we say shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. It almost sounds like a poem uh, we've memorized, but just think about it. Up on these rocky hills, maybe, in the dark, in the quiet, it'd be tedious, it'd be all-night work, and there's no phones to check, can you imagine? There's no uh, traffic to hear. So they're sitting in the quiet, trying to stay awake, watching over their sheep, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, totally unexpectedly, would be the shock of their lives. An angel of the Lord appears to them. And I think we ought to note the shepherds didn't get together and say, Oh, look, it's, look, it's so cute. Do you see his little wings and his golden harp? You know, where, do we, where do we get these ideas about angels that are so culturally popular? No, did you, did you see the shepherds' response? <clears throat> the text says they were filled with great what? Fear. Fear. They are terrifying. It would be terrifying to see an angel of the Lord. These are soldiers in his army. And throughout the biblical record, when you, when you see an angel, you are terrified. Why? Well, first of all, there's power we cannot understand. You read through the Bible and you see what one angel can do even to human armies. There's a power we cannot understand. There's also a holiness we cannot withstand because with an angel, it's a holy angel, a servant of the most high God. And we realize the holiness of God. And we realize we're not only helpless before this power, we're guilty before this holiness. So the shepherds are filled with fear. But this time the angel has not come in judgment. 
In fact, he's come with a message of peace. Look at Luke 2, Luke 2 verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not. That's awesome. In the presence of this power, don't be afraid. Fear not. In the presence of this holiness, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You know, it's a good question to ask. Why did the angel come to shepherds? What's notable about shepherds? Well, I think what's notable about the shepherds is that there's nothing notable about shepherds. That's the entire point. Shepherds are notable for being no one especially important. They would be on the low end of the economic spectrum. They're not especially educated. They're nobody really special. And so it's no one really special who gets to see the glory of God. They didn't see the glory of God because they were religious or smart or capable or successful or moral. No, their inability to deserve seeing the glory of God is entirely the point. These shepherds would never get a favorable audience with Caesar Augustus. But here, something infinitely greater, the very glory of the Lord God Almighty is shining around them. And this, this is an illustration then of the reality of the message the angels are bringing. It's good news of great joy for all the people, even shepherds, even you. What a message. It's good news. It's good news. In context, that means a victory has been won. Peace has come. All shall be well. It's good news of great joy. In other words, this news is better than we ever dreamed. It's better than we could have conceived of. It's good news of great joy, and it's for you. It's for the poor, those who've made mistakes, the weak, the failed, the lost. Verse 11, unto you is born this day. Who, me? Yes, you. God is announcing peace in the coming of his son, Luke 2.11. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Ultimate peace comes in the giving of Jesus Christ. Ultimate peace is found in him. Did you see how he was called the Savior? What's in this word, Savior, you know, this word is at the core of why some people love the claims of Christianity so much and why other people hate it so much. I mean, you and I, we, we get the idea of what Savior means. It has in it the context that there's someone who's helpless and in desperate need, cannot save themselves, cannot fix their own situation. And a Savior, someone who is both able to save and willing to save. A Savior comes in mercy and applies his strength to the need of the weak and the helpless. And the Savior takes the helpless one from destruction to peace. And Jesus claims to be the ultimate, the only Savior. 
So this is, you can see why some people love this and some people hate it. If you think you're fine and you're offended by the idea that you desperately need a savior, you'll have a very hard time with Jesus. He'll tell you that you're wrong. He'll tell you that you're blind. He'll tell you that you need him desperately. On the other hand, if you know your need, if you see some of your weakness, if you know you need a savior, you'll be thrilled that he came for you and that he brings peace. What do we mean by peace? I wanna read you a couple quotes. One is from biblical scholar Alec Mateer. He writes, peace means fulfillment. Peace is well-being and freedom from anxiety. In relationships, peace is goodwill and harmony. It's the opposite of war. Towards God, peace is the full realization of his favor. Do you see how huge this idea of biblical peace is? It's so much more than just a lack of fighting. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga says this of peace. Peace is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom is the way things ought to be. And this is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus brings. But now we need to now we see we need to see where peace begins where peace starts, how you get on this road to knowing Jesus and all the peace that he brings. And we see where it starts, I guess, by answering this question, what, why do you need it so badly? I wanna think about two reasons you desperately need this peace from Jesus Christ. First of all, it's this, God has plenty of reasons to be wrathful towards you. God has plenty of reasons to not give peace. Do you know this about yourself? Um, I know I've broken God's law. I've denied his design. I've replaced him with lesser things. I've looked to counterfeit peace. I have not loved him with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. I have not been joyfully fully submitted to his standard as revealed in his word. And I've not done all of this many, many times. I've sinned. The Bible says, you have too, all of us has. And if the holy judge of the earth, God owes us for this debt we've created for ourselves, and it's not peace that he owes us. It's judgment. It's wrath. And so we see our need for a savior that we desperately need God to be well-pleased with us but how can that possibly happen where, when in our sin we've been asking him to be the opposite of well-pleased with us? Somehow Luke 2.14 says this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. God gives his peace 
to those with whom he is pleased. So it's an important question. How can you know God is pleased with you? The answer is in the text. It's in the very gift of his son. It's like Micah said, Jesus will be our peace. We see in the story that Jesus, the eternal son of God, has taken on human nature. We know from the beginning of Luke that the Holy Spirit planted him in young Mary's womb without the work of any human man, that this is the incarnated Son of God taken on human nature. We'll look at that next week. And so Jesus came to live among us as one of us. And as so, he lived a perfect life in our place. He knows what it means to suffer, to be tempted, to live in the mess. And yet he lived the perfect life of obedience. Totally, absolutely righteous. And then as a culmination of what he came to do, he offered himself up as a lamb, like a lamb, as our substitute. Jesus came to be killable. And as he died on the cross, he paid our debt. And there in that cross, a holy, righteous God is just in punishing our evil. And a kind and gracious and merciful God completely saves those who have done the evil due to the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. What this means is this. If we repent of our sin and look to Jesus and who he is and what he's done, God gives us a gift freely by grace through faith. We have the perfection of Jesus accounted to us as our sin was accounted to him, which means in Christ we are forgiven, we are counted righteous, and he is well pleased with us. Not based on our own merits, based on the merits of Christ. And this is why Paul can say this in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how peace begins. That through Jesus Christ, God would be reconciled to you. Moreover, it begins because as as through Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to him. You know what the heart of the sin problem is? It's not that you made a mistake or you accidentally just broke a rule. The heart of the sin problem is hearts that are alienated to God, that do not like him. Look at Colossians 1.21. Paul says this, of all believers, this is who we were. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Why do we do the evil deeds? We don't like God. We won't be submitted to him. We won't be satisfied in him. We don't want God to be who he truly is, the Holy One, the authority, the one who has the right to do as he pleases, the one who has the right to design us as he desires and call us to live accordingly. 
We don't like that he's the one worthy of our lives and our love and our loyalty. We've got hostile hearts. But through the gift of Jesus Christ, God reconciles the hearts of his people. In the gift of his son for us, we see by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's incredible goodness and mercy towards us. And we see his plan, his desire to give us ultimate peace in him. We're convinced of his kindness. We're reconciled to him. We put our faith in who he is. Jesus is the sign to us of God's graciousness. The angel said this, this will be a sign to you. This will be a sign. You know, a sign is often proof. It's something to point you to something else. Here's the evidence. Here's how you know. And so the sign of what? A sign that a holy God can be pleased with people and give them his peace, even though they've sinned against him. Here's the sign. Luke 2.12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. You know, so here the angels promise a sign. A sign is usually some miraculous event. You know, you read the Gospel of John and you see John pointing to these massive signs and they tend to be these great miracles Jesus has done. And here the sign, the miraculous event, is almost a lack of a miraculous event. The sign is a normal birth to a poor young lady in a crowded house in the midst of poverty. So beautiful that in the lack of a miraculous event, it actually is the ultimate miraculous event that this, in this normal situation, this normal looking little baby is actually God's eternal son who came to be with us, who came for us, who came to save us, who is our peace. Remember the line from that Christmas hymn, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners, what? Reconciled. That's how peace begins. That God and sinners could be reconciled in and through Jesus Christ. This world offers a counterfeit peace in the gift of his son. God gives ultimate peace. Now let's think a little about the result of this gift of peace. You see this in Luke 2, 15 and following. When the angels had heard these things, or excuse me, when the shepherds had heard these things and the angels had went away into heaven, the shepherds said, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And what do, they, what do the shepherds do with this message of peace? This message from the angels. They went after it with haste. And so I think a result of receiving this peace from God is pursuing the peace. It's pursuing more. It's leaning in. It's pressing into who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's beginning to live it out. It's being amazed at the mercy of God for you and growing in that so that you can show it to others. Don't the shepherds just give us a little appetizer of what the church is supposed to be? 
to go with haste in pursuit of this message of peace. Paul says this in Ephesians 4 to God's people. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Friends, we need to pursue the peace we have in Christ together. In fact, in a world of counterfeit peace, the church is meant to be a picture of real peace as we interact together. We can make peace and pursue peace, this wholeness with one another through the peace we already share together with God in Christ. It's not easy, but the resources are there and pursuit of it is a command. In fact, look at this, Proverbs 16, 7. Proverbs 16, 7. Think of the way we are to exemplify God's peace. When a man's ways praise the Lord, the proverb says, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Churches, do our ways please the Lord? Would your social media pages show that your ways please the Lord? Do you make even your enemies to be at peace with you? Let's pursue his peace. The second thing to see is the shepherds praise and proclaim the God who gives them peace. They praise and proclaim, verses 17 to 20, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. No kidding. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard is seen as it had been told to them. When you really encounter the message of peace we receive from God through Jesus Christ, two things happen here. Not only do you pursue it, but two more things. You praise and you proclaim. You know, we heard the angel say, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Glory to God. We see his beauty, his kindness in sending Jesus Christ to us. And as we experience joy at the sight of his beauty, we praise him. That's what praise does. We see beauty. We get joy from it. We express the enjoyment of this great thing. That's why as a church, we want to love to praise God, to sing his praise, to give him glory, to be thrilled with the message of his peace to us in Christ. So we want to praise the God who gives us peace. And that also will lead to proclaiming the God who gives us peace. And the shepherds are such an example here. They're telling everyone. They're telling everyone. And they're not doing it with a kind of attitude where it's like, well, we're supposed to tell everybody, you know, did you check it on the list? No, they're doing it in the context of praise. They're thrilled. They're overwhelmed and they want to share this beautiful thing. That's what we're supposed to be like, isn't it? Are you thrilled with what you have in Jesus Christ? Are you telling anybody? Are you telling 
your acquaintances, your friends, your family? Are you looking for opportunities? Are you praying for opportunities to share with people, to tell them, to proclaim to them this message of peace? This is part of our outfit as Christians. It's part of what we wear. Look at Ephesians 6.15. Paul says, As shoes for your feet, this is what you wear, you having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. God is making peace with sinful humans. He is reconciling them to himself. He is giving them now peace with him, the ability to cultivate peace with one another and ultimately ultimate peace. So what are we supposed to see from this text? Jesus alone is ultimate peace for our time. In fact, Jesus alone is ultimate peace for all time. When he returns, his peace will reign on the earth. And all this is because of who he is. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the lion and the lamb. Think of his lion likeness. Sung of by armies of angels, the king promised from of old, king of kings, lord of lords, the one who rose from the dead, the one who brings peace with God, he shall reign forevermore. Think of his lamb likeness. Born in humility, born in obscure poverty, victim to political machinations, laid in a feeding trough, came to be with the nobodies, came for the nobodies, cursed and treated like a nobody on the cross, came for us to give us peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son and we're amazed that he would come like this. The one who deserves all glory and honor and praise coming like this into a place like this. Truly he is ultimate peace. Help us to see the beauty of who he is to rejoice in what you've done for us in him. We pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us with peace even now in our minds, in our hearts. As Isaiah says, those who fix their minds on you have peace. Lord, let us live this peace out in our relationships. Let us be a church of your peace in how we relate together. And let us be people full of praise to you for the peace that you are, the peace that you give. And let us share this message, Lord, especially in this time. This world is hurting, full of counterfeit, broken, lost peace. We have what they need. We pray that you'd use us to share this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. May you go in God's peace. We love you, church. Thanks for spending your time with us. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.